Um, we are working our way through the book of our letter of First Corinthians, and you happen to have joined us in one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, First Corinthians chapter 13. We're only going to do the first three verses, but if you would stand with me as I read this passage, First Corinthians chapter 13, one through three. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a, all faith so that as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. We pray now, Lord, that as we, as we go through these, uh, the beginning of this beautiful passage, you'd help us grasp what the Apostle Paul is saying, what your Holy Spirit is saying through him to the Corinthians and to us today. So, Lord... Uh, Open, open the ears of our heart to, that our hearts may hear and listen and be changed. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the, the previous chapter addressed the various gifts, and uh, it, was, it I was good to, to have uh, Brenna join us today because um, it so fits, fits so well with uh, what we've been talking about, how God... You, designs all of us uniquely. He uses all of us uniquely. And somehow it all fits together and all works together for his glory and to build up the body of Christ. It was a great illustration of that. Thank you, Dr. Brenna. And um, so now, uh, that, that I mean, in that chapter, chapter 12, the emphasis was on building up the body, which is the church. And the context shows that the church may, that church in Corinth was probably overemphasizing the gifts that some individuals had and esteeming them better than others because of their particular gift. But Paul ends that instruction with a look forward into this chapter, calling what's in this chapter the more excellent way. Those gifts are great, but there's something even better. John MacArthur writes, this chapter is a breath of fresh air, an oasis in a desert of problems. It's a positive note in the midst of almost continual reproof and correction of wrong understandings, wrong attitudes, wrong behavior, wrong use of God's ordinances and gifts. Paul's scribe must have breathed a sigh of relief and amazement when the apostle began dictating these beautiful Holy Spirit-inspired words. The first verse is again, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You see, the, the Corinthian church vied over who was following the best leader, or my leader's better than your leader, and mine's more gifted than yours. At the same time, they had this class struggle with the wealthy class being indifferent to the poor. Their greatest problem was that they were short on the greatest and most important gift of all, which is love. 
Love would have ended competition. It would have brought cooperation. It would have ended the class distinction and the apathy they had towards the poor. If they had God's love, all of them would be serving one another and putting one another first. While we have one word for love in English, most of you know Greek has four different words for love, and it's very important, especially when we understand this passage. The word used, the Greek word used in this passage is agape. The word is used to describe the love of God for the world in John 3.16. The love Jesus commands us to have for one another. It's unconditional, it's generous, it doesn't seek anything in return. It's love even when the subject of the, that love is unworthy. It can even love undeserving enemies, Romans chapter 5, verse 10. This kind of love can't be worked up. It must come from God. We're commanded to have this kind of love towards God and towards our fellow man. The last verse in this chapter, in fact, declares that it's one of the greatest gifts of God to mankind. And in a couple of weeks, we'll see the rest of this chapter is going to define what agape is further. But the other words uh, include eros. Eros is a passionate love between husband and wife. It's also used for love of country, as well as love of money and of fame. It can be used in a positive or a negative way, but it's never used in scripture. Another word for love, storge, is affectionate love. And an example is love between a parent and their child or between citizens of the same nationality. You know, when I lived abroad, I, was, I, I felt this storge love. I'd find a fellow American citizen and it was like instant connection because you're in an unfamiliar world with people who are so different and think differently. So I realized what this meant. It's another word, though, that's not used in the New Testament. But another word for love that is, is phileo. It is an enduring love, such as the committed love between a husband and a wife. Love of family members, or love experienced in a deep friendship. It's love that cherishes the heart of the one that's loved. But again, this chapter, every time we see the word love, it's agape love, God's unique kind of love. So Paul starts this contrast of the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit, uh, especially the overemphasized, apparently, the overemphasized gift of tongues. He declares, if one could speak all the languages of men, imagine that. I know some people that can speak eight languages. I'm like in awe. <laughs> What if you could speak every language of man and of angels? But he says without love, it's just noise, irritating noise at that. But look a little closer. He says that Paul's telling them it's not the words that are just noise. It's the person speaking who is the irritating bong, clang, crash. He uses the first person, I, uh, that, I love that way, that pastoral heart of Paul relating to his people. He says, that's what I am if I don't speak in love. But of course, it applies to us all. We come together as a body on, on Sunday and at other times to hear God through one another. We've just heard things of God uh, through our sister Brenna. 
Um, but if it's some noisy, untranslated language that keeps, it just keeps our ears occupied with sounds that mean nothing to us, which keeps us from hearing what needs to be communicated. Remember when you're a child and you're, maybe, maybe this is unique to me, I don't know. Let me know if that's the case. <laughs> Your mom or dad would try to tell you something. You'd heard it a hundred times, and they're trying to tell you again, and so you go, na, 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 na. I can't hear you, right? Am I the only one that did that? I was a rebellious little kid. Oh, no. <laughs> Confession. <laughs> If you walk into church today and everyone's speaking in tongues or babbling and no one interprets, you know they're ignoring this passage and specifically what's pointed out in the next chapter. Love is more excellent way than the gift of tongues. That doesn't mean that the gift of tongues is worthless. It does mean though without love that considers others, it is. D.A. Carson writes that, that Paul is saying, you who insist that speaking in tongues attest a second work of the Spirit, a baptism of the Spirit, I tell you, if love doesn't characterize your life, there is not even an evidence of the first work of the Spirit. Verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and have, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. He moves from the gift of tongues to the more highly esteemed gifts of prophecy, wisdom, knowledge, and faith. Faith that moves mountains, in fact. You know, the, the Corinthians were impressed with the rhetorical skill. That it was a Greek thing. How can you, how can you speak in a way that's going to be persuasive and powerful? And that may be what Paul's referring to by prophecy. Paul's telling them that beautiful rhetoric that's not filled with love is, is just a bunch of noise. It's love that makes speech worthwhile. Love builds up, it encourages, it comforts, and it gives sound direction. In the first chapter of this letter, Paul told them that they were, they were enriched, that is the Corinthians, were enriched in all speech so the words they chose were influenced by their relationship with Jesus. But if those words weren't from a heart of love, even those words were just meaningless noise. In fact, he says, those who exercise those gifts without love are themselves nothing. What a reality check to those who thought their, their special gift elevated them above everybody else. So how do we speak to one another? How do we exercise our gifts? Are they from a heart of love? Are we speaking to impress or out of a heart of love for the family of God? Paul emphatically declares that without love, these gifts mean we are nothing. Some preachers can move their audience with, with truth in scripture and yet, the person themselves that's speaking is living a lie. We've seen that too many times. God works through his word because the messenger's flaw doesn't negate the power of the word, and yet the preacher will have to stand before God and give 
and account for his lack of love. Their hypocrisy gives excuse for the skeptic to reject the word of God that they proclaim. Our heads may be full of important and useful information, but lack of love makes it all useless. You've probably been with extremely intelligent people who are knowledgeable on many subjects. They're interesting to talk with, but you go away with the impression that the person had a head full of cold facts and figures. You don't really think much of the person. It's easy to see that their focus is on how special they think they are and how ignorant they consider everyone else to be. Knowledge is only a good sign when a person applies it with love. Even if a person had all knowledge, consider that. How, how amazing that would be. It'd put them on jeopardy, you know? They'd win every time. All knowledge. Without love, they would be nothing. Imagine someone possessing all knowledge all knowledge in the known world. We'd be super impressed, but in God's eyes, if they don't have love, they're nothing. The tech world, you know, they wants to create a supercomputer that has all the knowledge of mankind so that anyone can easily look up any information and download it instantly and get the answer. We respect knowledge, but realize that editing our knowledge goes on every minute. What we thought was true one day is overturned by tomorrow's discovery. Not only is the computer limited by the programmer and information available, but no computer is going to have love. What does that mean? It's nothing. Nothing in God's eyes. We often talk about the importance of the power of faith. Faith is a gift that comes from God. But even if our faith can move mountains, which was an expression of that time of insurmountable issues that seemed impossible to resolve, if the faith isn't exercised in love, we're nothing. Now that's interesting because it tells us faith works despite the person who's exercising it. That's why we see seemingly miraculous things at times from unbelievers. So it's not faith alone that matters, but faith exercised in love. Love is the first fruit of the Spirit. Spiritual gifts without love have a temporal effect at the very best. Love is what makes the effect of the gift life-changing. Unselfish love comes from the person who relies on God who is love. Jesus didn't say, you'll know them by their gifts. He said, they'll know your Christians by your love. Verse 3, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul was addressing tongues, speech, knowledge, faith, and now he addresses the gift of generosity. He says that the greatest generosity or sacrifice gains nothing unless it is done in love. Love is the telltale sign of the spirit at work in the godly individual as their gift is expressed. 
Self-sacrifice is the denial of self for others, but Paul's telling us that even that can be done without love. One day when I was sharing about the fact that it's, it's only Christ in us that brings about good works and, and it makes an eternal difference, someone asked about, about, what about atheists and agnostics who do good things? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that in this verse. For God is love. And if they're without God, they are without agape love. And their motivation is probably to exalt themselves. We can imitate any gift. We can pretend to be selfish. But God sees the heart and judges by what he sees in our hearts. Giving can be an act of duty or feeling one's forced to give and is therefore reluctant. It can be done with an air of superiority or as in the account of the widow's might, some were giving out of their abundance, hoping for a blessing. We can give to make a name for ourselves, but if that motivation, if that's the motivation, it really doesn't amount to anything. You know, um, you can look around this church and there are still remnants of the past where there's names. I think as some of you look on the back of one of those pews there where Steve is or maybe where David is, you'll see this pew is donated by. And we used to have a flagpole out here before the renovation that this flagpole's don donated by so-and-so. And on the patio, in the corner of the patio, there's this church is donated by so-and-so. But time passes and those things disappear, and no one remembers who those people were. I, I think other than maybe Dick and Jean, I've been here longer than anybody, and I don't know who the per person was that donated the patio renovation. It's love that counts. It's love that matters. My father's name is, is on a... Uh, Performing Arts Center at the California Baptist University in Riverside. Someday the building's going to be turned down. I don't know if anybody remembers who he was. It was too long ago. But when we sacrifice from a heart of love, love expects nothing in return. Love that does not care if anyone ever knows what we did. We lay up in tr eternal treasure in heaven. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 6, 3 and 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Paul seems to be indicating that no matter how great the sacrifice and what could be a greater sacrifice than martyrdom, delivering up your body to be burned, but if it's not done in agape love, love that expects nothing back, not respect or honor or praise, then the giver gains nothing. Now, it's probably referring to martyrdom of the most horrific kind. A person can be burned at the stake and not die for the love of God and others. God sees the heart. And what counts to God is selfless love, that agape love, that godlike love that only comes from the Spirit. So these three verses have instructed us that gifts of the Spirit exercised without agape love are meaningless. Paul's conclusion is that we see that without love, the gifts mean nothing of any lasting value. 
They may produce some effect on the recipients, but it will be temporal and ultimately meaningless if love is not present. A quote from, uh, another quote from Carson, in none of these instances does Paul uh, depreciate spiritual gifts, but he refuses to recognize any positive assessment of any of them unless the gift is discharged in love. Principally, therefore, any particular gift is dispensable so far as the spiritual prophet or attestation of the Spirit's present is concerned, but love is indispensable. As I was reviewing the sermon this morning, getting, getting ready to, to deliver it, I, I thought of those who witnessed Jesus' miracle of, of the loaves and fish. You remember that story in Matthew chapter 6? And Jesus prays and the fish and the loaves are multiplied. Jesus gets in the boat. He goes somewhere else. Everybody follows him around the lake and they're all there. And Jesus basically says, you're here for more fish sandwiches. You know, you, you've seen signs. And those signs indicate I'm the love of God, the Messiah, for your salvation. But all you want to do is see miracles. It's the same idea. The supernat wanting to see supernatural more than to experience the love of God and receive the love of God. I remember a time when a, a person online asked why I didn't write more about the gifts of the Spirit. And as it happened, I was teaching through Corinthians. And, I, and so I get to this, this part of Corinthians, and he unsubscribed. <laughs> because he wanted the miraculous to be the main thing. He wanted to see the supernatural. He, and there's nothing wrong with, with like, like Carson said, he's not deprecating the gifts. He's just saying without love, they're meaningless. Love is evidence that it's from the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts without the fruit are meaningless. But the opposite isn't the case. The fruit without supernatural gifts is still powerful and converts souls. Those with the fruit have the right heart, and in time they will have a gift. Those who seem to have the gifts without the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are operating in the flesh. Some people live for a little spiritual buzz. You know anybody like that? They've got to have the next feeling from God because they associate that with God's presence. It's a nice confirmation at times, but to live for that is immature and can even be idolatrous. We stand on faith in the word of God, amen? And we know we are loved because of what Christ has done for us. Because we're commanded to, to have this kind of love and we're nothing without it, we should be asking ourselves if we have it, amen? Do I have this kind of love? Is that, that what my daily life expresses? And we need to examine our hearts and see what motivates our actions and our speech. And if we find it's not agape love, most of, and most of us will find it in many cases that's true, 
then we should asking ourselves how we can possess this kind of love and let it become our motivation in everything we do and everything we say. Since it must come from God who is himself agape love, we must first have a right relationship with him. And that means to be forgiven, that we just sang about, to be cleansed, which only comes through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And he offers to take our sins and the punishment we deserve and give us his righteousness in exchange. We're credited with the righteousness of God. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but that we will be made perfect when we see him. And, and thank God he uses imperfect vessels, as Brenna was saying. Um, the Apostle Paul is our great example. He declared himself to be the chief of sinners. And yet look how God mightily used him. I think God delights to use weak and broken vessels. It means God sees that final product and he can therefore give us his Holy Spirit, which exudes agape love. Let me put it a little more succinctly. We recognize that we have this great need. We're sinners. We don't have God's love. We see that Jesus made it possible for us to be forgiven because he took our punishment upon himself. And then we humbly ask for forgiveness. And God forgives us and imparts his own spirit to us. And that expresses everything in love for God and love for our fellow man. You might be like me and say, well, I've done all that, but at times I still act selfishly and I catch myself doing things I don't want to do. Well, congratulations, you're just like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 when he declared, I keep doing these things I don't want to do. But in Romans 8, Paul tells us we can live according to the Spirit. He writes that the Spirit lives in us and gives us life. He tells us that by the Spirit, we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. One day the battle be over and the work in us will be complete. Agape love will be our continual expression, our nature through and through. And aren't we looking forward to that day? Amen. In the meantime, how do we increase in Christ's likeness and express agape love more and more? How can we cooperate with God in this process of sanctification? I'll tell you what's most effective for me. We're all unique. But for me, it's quiet time in prayer. And it's one of the hardest things for me to do because my flesh hates it. You know, if I'll get still and just let God speak to my heart, praise him, thank him, love him, and then listen. But we need to first saturate our minds with the word of God. It's the word that reveals the love of God. In Romans 8, Paul also tells us that we are to set our minds, or those who set their minds on the flesh uh, is, to, is death, but to set our minds on the spirit is life and peace. And again, in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on things that are on earth. We renew our minds with the word of God. Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good, acceptable, and perfect. 
In Ephesians, Paul tells us to pray in the Spirit on all occasions for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If we're walking and talking with God in prayer, we're much less likely to do something selfish and self-centered. The Spirit enables us to discipline our lives, but we're still free to choose to do our own thing or, or to choose to walk in the Spirit. We have to be honest with ourselves and ask if we, want to exp- if we really truly want to express this agape love that we are given. And if we really do, then we must exercise the spirit of self-control and self-discipline. Spending time in the word. Take a verse with you through the day or a song in your heart. Continue to pray as you go and have that friend that is closer than a brother as your unseen companion. Love begets love. And when we listen to his love for us or or read of it in the word, it should result in us loving him more. And when we love him more, we love those he loves. The agape love overflows to others. We're willing to give our time and our resources as he leads us. And when we see the fruit from love, we just want to love even more. John MacArthur writes, We do not have to be humanly taught to love because we ourselves are taught by God to love one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 We are therefore told to pursue love. 1 Corinthians 14.1 To put on love. Colossians 3.14 To increase and abound in love. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 and Philippians 1.9 To be sincere in love. 2 Corinthians 8.8 to be unified in love, Philippians 2.2, 2. to be fervent in love, 1 Peter 4.8, and to stimulate one another to love, Hebrews 10.24. You think maybe there's a consistent theme throughout the letters? To have this agape love. Now, it's not natural to mankind, to the human nature. It's only when God, who is love, fills our hearts and our minds with himself. So I ask you again, do you want to allow yourself to be an instrument of God's agape love? Are you willing to deny the flesh and walk in the spirit? It isn't an easy road, but it's a good road. And actually, it's an adventure. It's the high road. It's the narrow road and it leads to everlasting life. Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song?